hppodcraft.com. Welcome to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. Uh, we're going to dig into a double feature again this week, but before we do that, just had a quick announcement to make. This coming March, we are both featured in an anthology by a publishing company in the UK called Self-Made Hero. It's a graphic novel featuring adaptations of Lovecraft stories, right? Yeah, it's drawings and words. <laughs> That's right, <laughs> so it's easy to get through. It's called the Lovecraft Anthology Volume 2. If you haven't seen it, you should check out Lovecraft Anthology uh, Volume 1 featuring some work by our guest, Ian J. Colbart. Yeah. That was pretty outstanding. It's a really good book. We'll put up a link to it in our show notes. But in the second volume, uh, they were gracious enough to ask us to adapt a couple stories. I adapted The Hound. And I adapted The Temple. I worked with excellent artist uh, Brian Baugh. If you've ever read Wolf and Batsy, he's really cool. And who was the artist that you worked with, Chris? Oh, Adrian Salmon. Uh, he's a really talented guy. It's really cool. It's kind of have a bit of a Art Deco feel. You just guys got to buy the book and check it out. Yeah, it's going to be really cool. So that's coming out this March. Now, in uh, conjunction with that book coming out, we decided that we wanted to produce some more readings and why not do productions of The Hound and The Temple yeah. in support of the book. So what we're trying to do, it's a typical ransom, just like we've done before. We're looking to raise $2,000, make a donation, whatever size you can, and we're going to have those readings. Now, the, the readers are for The Temple, our old standby favorite. Andrew Lehman. And then for The Hound, the same person that read it when we did the story on the show, Anthony Tedesco. Gotta love that Tedesco. So those are going to be really cool. You know, some might say, tell you what, I want to read that comic, and, and that's enough for me. I don't need the audio. I support that decision, but others, maybe <laughs> maybe they want to have something to listen to on that late night walk through the woods, so I would encourage you to donate. We would like to be able to raise the money and get them produced around the same time as the uh, comic comes out, yeah. so over the next month. I love those readings, and and I want more of them. It's it's nice yeah. when I go to our website and I see the readings that we already have there, and it, it makes me yeah. feel good, and I want more, <laughs> more. And these uh, these stories are so, I love them both so much, oh, and I, obviously the uh, adaptations have already been done. I've already seen both of them, mm -hmm. and they're so cool. I can't wait for the book to come out. I'm really excited about yeah, it. Yeah, me too. I, I love the hound so much. I, and I love the temple so much, especially my adaptation of it. <laughs> it's almost silly to like take credit for it in any form. I know. Because the artist does such a great job and Lovecraft wrote the story. So it's like. It's just a matter of you're, you're picking out the best bits of it. And, yeah. And that's that's really all your job is, is as a writer for that type of thing. But anyway, check out Lovecraft Anthology Volume 2 coming out in March. Get it, buy it. If you're not in the UK, it might be a bit harder, but you can still do it. Go out and get it. You'll be glad you did. We'll put up links to all that stuff. And now let's just get into the show. All right, our two stories this week are The Horde of the Wizard Beast. It's a great title. <laughs> Dude, that is, the, you know, there are a lot of Lovecraft titles that have or, or would make excellent metal songs. But The Horde of the Wizard Beast takes the cake. That just sounds like some awesome... In the land where the wizard beast holds dominion, <laughs> you know, magic is the weapon of joy. Yeah, it sounds like like a man of war song. Yeah, man of war. You know where they always have like meaningless phrases strung together. You know, when love becomes death, you know? <laughs> your dreams will come marching. <laughs> The wizard beast laughs at the rain! I want you to continue, but I guess we should really get on with it. Yeah, yeah. Well, the other story is another great metal sounding. The slang of the monster. The slang of and the it's, monster. And it's only very loosely story. I mean, it's only flipping five paragraphs long. The slang of the monster. Yeah, it's very short. And these are both yeah. done with R.H. Barlow. We'll get into both of them. They're pretty short, but why don't we just do some biography up front? Who is R.H. Uh, Barlow? Well, R.H. Barlow was a writer, poet, artist, sculptor collector, scholar, publisher, mm -hmm. and he eventually became H.P. Lovecraft's literary executor when Lovecraft Rise. died. Yeah. 
But how they met was, now at this point in Lovecraft's career, he had a, a huge group of uh, fanboys basically that would write to mm -hmm. him and, and he would write back. And that included guys like Robert E. Howard and Robert Block and, a, and right. a bunch of others. This is where things get weird. This is, when I was reading this, it kind of tripped me up a bit, a little bit. Mm -hmm. When he first started writing Lovecraft, he was 13 years old. This was in 1931. Barlow. And Barlow was, yeah. Okay. Lovecraft with this time, 31, he was 41. So Barlow would have been born around the time Lovecraft started writing. Yeah, in 1918, Late. as a matter of fact. Yeah, yeah, okay. But Lovecraft didn't know that he was as young as he was. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Lovecraft encouraged him to get involved with the National Amateur Press Association, and he got into writing, and he got some stuff published, even as young as he was. In 1934, Barlow said, hey, why don't you come down to Florida, because he lived in uh, Deland, Florida, and, you know, stay with me and my family. Lovecraft goes, well, you know, I don't know if I can afford it, because that's always the case, but he finally saved up the money and went down there. So when he went down there, he discovered, when he met him at the, at the bus station, that he was 16 years old. <laughs> like, when he met his family, he met, like, his mom and his dad, not his wife and his children. I, I would love to see that independent film. You know? <laughs> Lovecraft in Florida with a 16-year-old boy, confused, <laughs> having to stay with the parents. It's really awkward. No. Gosh, it's now. This is one of those things when I when I read that I didn't. I, I just got that bit of information first, and I thought to myself, that sounds a little peculiar. A forty, mm -hmm. a forty-four year old man and a sixteen-year-old boy right. hanging out together, and then I found out, doing more research, Barlow committed suicide. Um, supposedly because his homosexuality was going to be outed. Yeah, I I was reading about this. So he, later in his career, he was uh, chairman of the anthropology department at Mexico City College. He had moved to Mexico in the 40s. And at the university, he was afraid that somebody was going to out him. Some disgruntled student was going to out him as a homosexual, right? Yeah. This was interesting. William S. Burroughs was a student of Barlow's at the time. And he, and in a letter that he wrote to Allen Ginsberg, he wrote, Queer professor from KC, Missouri, head of the anthropology department here at MCC, where I collect my $75 per month, knocked himself off a few days ago with overdose of goofballs vomit all over the bed. I can't see the suicide kick. So he was probably struggling with his sexual identity most of his life. Yeah. Now I heard that first so that when, when you told me about this trip that Lovecraft took, I guess I didn't put it together that he would have been a teenager and Lovecraft would have been in his 40s. It is odd, but I mean Joshi and um, A Life Lovecraft A Life goes into a lot of detail about the stuff that they did when they hung out which was... Because mm -hmm. he was there for a while, right? He was there for six weeks. He stayed <laughs> with him for six weeks and Lovecraft was totally broke at this time in his life so um barlow's parents kind of you know fed him and took care of him and stuff while he was there the mm -hmm. whole time seemed to be really into lovecraft and really liked him and like lovecraft would get up every morning and, and tell them about the dreams that he had the night before <laughs> at breakfast time it's really really interesting stuff and they would go out on walks out in the woods and just talk talk about you know, cats, because oh, they had three cats and the cats would go with them on their walks and stuff. And mm -hmm. okay, so this is what Barlow says about his visit. We rode on the lake, rode as in a rowboat, and played with the cats or walked in the highway with these cats as the unbelievable sun went down among the pines and cypresses. Above all, we talked chiefly of the fantastic tales which he wrote and which I was trying to write. At breakfast, he told us of his dreams. Our full talk, <laughs> our full talk. <laughs> Our talk was full of offhand references to ghouls and bolts of terror on the surfaces uh. of strange stars, and Lovecraft wrote an atmosphere of ominous illusion about any chance sound on the roadside as we walked with my three cats, one of whom he had named Alfred A. Kampf. 
At other times, he would be prevailed upon to read his own stories aloud, always with sinister tones and silences in the proper spots. <laughs> Especially, he liked to read with the, an 18th century pronunciation, Sarvant for servant and me for my. Wow. Weird. Now, he, he had written a memoir of this time with Lovecraft called The Wind That Is In The Grass. That's is right. That, that's an excerpt? Yeah, that's from that. You know, it sounds like a really cool time, actually. I'm sure that there wasn't. I mean, I, don't, I wouldn't even care if there was, but I'm sure there's nothing to it. And, uh, you know, Lovecraft liked hanging out with other people who were imaginative. And yeah. it, you'd, you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody who's not more in the throes of their imagination than a 16-year-old guy, you know? Yeah. And I don't, of course, I don't think anything uh, untoward happened. And there's no reason to think anything did. Unless you want to think that that happened. You know it? that there's a thriving market for uh, Lovecraft Barlow slash fiction. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're joking, but you might actually be correct. It's funny, I really didn't put the age thing together. So before the call, you had told me that, and it made me feel a little bad. I felt, I, I kind of had the same experience as Lovecraft because when I was looking through the story, I was bashing it Oh yeah. for the quality of the writing because I honestly don't think Lovecraft wrote these stories. They have all of the non-practiced hand of a high schooler. <laughs> <laughs> and now that it's revealed to me it actually was a high schooler, I feel I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be a heck of a lot nicer. We are going to start with the Horde of the Wizard Beast. There had happened in the teeming and many-towered city of Zeth one of those incidents which are prone to take place in all capitals of all worlds. Nor simply because Zeth lies on a planet of strange beasts and stranger vegetation did this incident differ greatly from what might have occurred in London or Paris or any of the great governing towns we know. Through the cleverly concealed dishonesty of an aged but shrewd official, the treasury was exhausted. No shining Frelda, as of old, lay stacked about the strong room, and over empty coffers the sardonic spider wove webs of mocking design. When, at last, the Gifath Yaldan entered that obscure vault and discovered the thefts, there were left only some phlegmatic rats which peered sharply at him, as at an alien intruder. Uh, who, who's our reader there? Oh, that is a, a friend of the show, Marty Jobson, who you Marty. may, if you are from the UK or like the BBC, you would see him on the one show. He is on there every once in a while showing off cool science stuff. And showed off his cool readings here again for us. He's a treasure and a big Lovecraft fan. <laughs> This opening paragraph is so crappy. Oh. I, I, it's got so it's funny. It reminds me of a um, five paragraph essay that high schoolers write. You know, <laughs> have I made fun of that before on the show? No, I don't think so. I don't know about you, but I'm having problems remembering what I've talked about on here and what I. Yeah, dude. Haven't. Well, we've this is our 102nd show, so it's we've been doing this for a few years, and to yeah. remember conversations exactly uh, that were a few years old, it's it's kind of hard. I know. Every time I sit down to write now, it's kind of like when you, you start becoming friends with somebody and you don't want to tell them the same story twice. Well, hopefully, if you don't remember, they won't remember. Yeah. Anyway, a five-paragraph essay you were saying. You know those five-paragraph essays where they say open with a kind of general statement in the first paragraph. And then, I mean, I used to teach these to sophomores. And then you have your thesis statement at the bottom. And it would right. be about Romeo and Juliet. And the first sentence would be like, all down through the ages, men and women have been in love. You know? <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's totally what this sounds like, you know. When I you remember doing it. Well, it, it also has that really crappy sci-fi kind of thing where they're using made-up words to be things where you don't need to make up words. Where, the, you know, right. he's, he's the guy fat. Guy Fath? Yeah, the guy. The guy, the guy Fath, Fath Yaldin. 
What's a, what does a guy fact? You know, is it, I, I'm assuming he's some kind of proprietor of something just from reading. The, but why make up words? That's, I know. It's, and the frolder is their money, right? It took me a second to figure that out. No shining frolder. As of old. Laced act on yeah. The, oh, yeah. Well, I thought maybe it was a type of gold or something. But later on in the story, they actually say gold. So then I realize, oh, that that's not. It's You're right. It's money. I, it confused me. It's overly confusing. And um, it, you're <laughs> right. It really feels like a 16-year-old wrote this. Well, guess what? <laughs> uh, but, but the paragraph tells us basically it's the city of wondrous plants and animals where a very commonplace theft has taken place. Somebody's yeah. ripped off the treasury of this town or city or whatever. Yeah. Would, would make a terrible heist movie. You know? <laughs> Boys, I have my eyes on the city of Zeth. <laughs> this time tomorrow, you'll be up to your eyeballs in shining frolder. <laughs> you'll be rolling in it. The owner, the guy responsible, maybe the banker, is this guy Yaldin. Mm-hmm. Yaldin decides he doesn't know how to handle this. There doesn't. The only real authority of the city is Orn, and Orn is just kind of a big, weird monster. Yeah, Orn is what well, they think. Orn came from the outer abyss, and then somehow got caught in Zeth by the priests. Somehow the priests mm-hmm, caught right. him, and then uh, he changes shape, and he sort of became this oracle. So they've imprisoned him and used him, and he's become a god that's sort of worshipped, yeah. and he's kind of an authority. But he's really just sort of an idiot protoplasm and they they whisper at him what to say and then they interpret the monster noises that yeah exactly just... well i mean here here's well when when our when our man yalden goes to visit him and this is what this is what happens hesitantly yalden stated his unfortunate mission and asked advice weaving into his discourse the type of flattery which seemed to him most discreet then with anxiety he awaited the oracle's response having tidily finished its food Orn raised three small reddish eyes to Yaldon and uttered certain words in a tone of vast decisiveness. Gume ere fotul leheteg. After this, it vanished suddenly in a cloud of pink smoke, which seemed to issue from behind the curtain where the acolytes were. The acolytes then came forth from their hiding place and spoke to Yaldon, saying, since you have pleased the deity with your concise statement of a very deplorable state of affairs, we are honoured by interpreting its directions. The aphorism you heard signifies no less than the equally mystic phrase, Go thou unto thy destination. Or more properly speaking, you are to slay the monster wizard Anathas and replenish the treasury with its fabled hoard. <laughs> so this thing is like a big fat gray furry pudgy thing that came out eating it was eating something just kind of munching the whole time it's it's pretty funny i actually i laughed i was laughing at this part me too me the, too well i i gotta say the first time i read through it i was so focused on there's a sentence in here he says uh, after this it vanished suddenly in a cloud of pink smoke which seemed to issue from behind the curtain where the acolytes were it's so poorly phrased and clunkily put together yeah that's kind of what I was focusing on. Now, when I went through it, to, when I read it again this morning, I think, you know, actually, this is pretty creative. This big monster that's just kind of a stupid figurehead right. that, the, with, that the priests are whispering to. And uh-huh. then the priests, look, the monster didn't say anything. They're just kind of, of putting course. one over. Yeah, they're totally yeah. putting one over it. On and then they tell him, he's like this banker guy. And they go, oh, yeah, you need to go out and kill a monster wizard, Anathis. 
and get his treasure to replace the treasury of the money stolen. It's like, what? That's terrible advice. That doesn't help him catch the people that stole, you know, or anything. No, they're just go steal from somebody else. <laughs> Yaldin gets into this idea. I mean, he's afraid because he's heard that Anathis is a horrible, horrible thing. And it, it dwells in this place called the Cave of the Three Winds. But he gets excited by the idea of being a monster hunter. And he hears that Anathis sometimes has hot chicks and that right. that he might rest because he's into hot chicks, might be able to rescue a hot chick. And he <laughs> relates all of this stuff about maybe... He's been reading a lot of Conan comics. Exactly. He, he figures the monster's got a few chicks and fur bikinis just kind of... Uh, <laughs> right. And it's funny. around up there. Yeah. And this part, I'm I'm laughing, actually. This is, a, this is a funny part here. Well, it's funny, but I mean, isn't it also... The, there's, you really could look into this a little deeper. I mean, they've got the big, blathering, fat politician monster that's just kind of instructed by his advisors what to say, and then they, they comment on what he he really means, you know. And then <laughs> they've tricked him into going to certain death to get treasure from this monster, and he's convinced that he's going to get some hot chicks from it. Sounds a little familiar to me. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right? There's some geopolitical ramifications to this sure, high schooler sure, story. Sure, yeah. sure. But I mean, at this point, I was really. As opposed to last week, I was actually enjoying this and thought it was funny. Right. Yeah, right on. Because it didn't take up much time either. To no, this is very short. This is very short. Yeah. I mean, we're almost more than halfway through it right now already. Uh, so he packs up. He has an amulet that makes it so he doesn't have to eat or drink ever. That doesn't yeah. pay off ever, by the way. No. It doesn't, <laughs> but except other to make me envious. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't that be great to that would just be amazing. have some kind of charm and you're okay i got a long flight i'm gonna put this on i won't be hungry or thirsty this is other weird thing that happens is he he goes on for a while and then he gets to this place which is uh called the place of the white worm he Mm. finds this little maggot and he makes a green circle around it and then the lord of the worms shows up his name is saral and he says you got to do some favors for me if i let this worm go and saral goes okay i'll do some favors for you what happened there was that the white worm told him where to find the cave of three winds where the monster lived where the wizard beast lived kind of interesting it had a dream quest of unknown Kadath. yeah it did so he he goes out to where this cave is where the wizard beast lives and the thing instead of it being blighted around this cave there's some kind of pets that that it has created itself through some kind of flesh crafting yeah through its magic or its wizardry Um, there's this line that i liked here it said great numbers of persons of stronger will and wit than Yaldin had died in remarkable manner while seeking the horde of the wizard beast, and their bones were laid in a strange pattern before the mouth of the cave as a warning to others. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah. that's pretty cool. That's a good one. Sure. This yeah. is uh, the knight going to slay the dragon. I mean, exactly. it's a really uh, archetypical tale, but kind of, you know, an interesting Lovecraftian spin on it. First, he has to kind of crawl into the small cave, and that opens up into this big, bright, shiny, blue, silvery, domed room that looks like it was made by... A wizard. It's it's unnatural. But there's no treasure in this room. So he goes, he sees the small kind of other cavern going off, and he goes into that cavern. And in this room, there are hot coals on the floor that are shooting off fire, mm-hmm. lizards and dragons, and the, there's a, a green monster salamander. <laughs> there's a flock of wyvern-headed birds, and wyverns are like dragons. Right. So there's like these lizard-headed bird things. And they're all, on top of a dais, there is a big pile of gold and jewels and things and then that's it that's the horde of the wizard beast hoarders <laughs> it's the greatest episode of hoarders ever <laughs> I, I think that uh, as he looks at the kind of the there's a river of flame around the horde and there's a little path yeah 
but that looks dangerous. But as he approaches it, it kind of opens up for him. Right. To, for Yalden. So he can actually just walk right across this path, across the River Flame, over to the treasure. And he says, there, there's probably nothing strange about this. <laughs> it's just been made very easy for me. So exactly. why would the, there be anything wrong? He's guessing Anathis, the wizard, is gone, that he's left this mm. place. And so he's going to get some treasure while he's there. And he's, you know, hey, woohoo, I'm going to rock. I'm going to roll. Everything's working out. And he walks through there, gets to the gets to the bottom of the dais, and then this happens. But now he perceived that the miraculous passage through the flaming floor was closing again, leaving him marooned on the dais with the glittering treasure he had sought. And when it had fully closed and his eyes had circled round vainly for some way of escape, he was hardly reassured by the shapeless, jelly-like shadow which loomed colossal and stinking in the great archway behind the dais. He was not permitted to faint, but was forced to observe that this shadow was infinitely more hideous than anything hinted in any popular legend, and that its seven iridescent eyes were regarding him with placid amusement. Then Anathas, the wizard beast, rolled fully out of the archway, mighty in necromantic horror, and jested with the small, frightened conqueror before allowing that horde of slathering and peculiarly hungry green salamanders to complete their slow, anticipatory ascent of the dais. Boom. And that's a bit of a, of a disappointing ending for me. I, yeah, I thought it's kind of a downer. It, well, it just I thought there would be something more... Because clever about the ending. I, I thought there would be some sort of punchline to it. And there really is not. He just sort of gets yeah. killed by the monsters and the wizard wins and that's it. It had the simplicity of a fable, you know. Yeah. Don't, I guess, you, what's the message? Like the easy path is going to get you eaten by salamanders or something. But it's not, I mean, yeah, but it's not, you know, he did work really hard for this and he sort of got duped into it as well. Yeah. Yeah, this guy, he was just a big dummy. Everybody yeah. manipulated him and he wound up dead. Yeah, that's true. Now, this story and the next one that we did weren't published until the 90s when Joshi kind of dug them up. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, no wonder they have these crazy metal titles. This was in Lovecraft's grunge phase. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Nobody told me that. Yes. Well, now it makes sense. Now you understand. Yeah. Yeah, he yeah. was trying to toughen up his image, but it didn't quite work out. Um, it was first published in The Horde of the Wizard Beast and One Other which was edited by Joshi. He still had stories coming out in 94. Yeah. There's a reason why, though, I think this one was, this <laughs> one was left here. Right. Ah, it was all right. It has a juvenile kind of appeal to it. All right, so this next story is The Slaying of the Monster, and that was in that, and it was in that book. Yes, it was in that book as well. You know, Pfeiffer, this thing is so short. Let's just read the whole thing. Well, I've been telling you that all day. <laughs> no, you, you liar. You liar. <laughs> okay. Yes, that's a great idea, Chris. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we might as well. Marty, okay. hit it. Great was the clamor in Lane, for smoke had been spied in the hills of the dragon. That surely meant that stirrings of the monster, the monster who spat lava and shook the earth as he writhed in its depths. And when the men of Lane spoke together, they swore to slay the monster and keep its fiery breath from searing their minaret-studded city and toppling their alabaster domes. So it was that by torchlight gathered fully a hundred of the little people, prepared to battle the evil one in his hidden fasthold. With the coming of night, they began marching in ragged columns into the foothills beneath the fulgent lunar rays, 
Ahead, a burning cloud shone clearly through the purple dusk, a guide to their goal. For the sake of truth, it is to be recorded that their spirits sank low long ere they sighted the foe, and as the moon grew dim and the coming of the dawn was heralded by gaudy clouds, they wished themselves more than ever at home, dragon or no dragon. But as the sun rose, they cheered up slightly, and shifting their spears, resolutely trudged the remaining distance. Clouds of sulphurous smoke hung pall-like over the world, darkening even the new-risen sun, and always replenished by sullen puffs from the mouth of the monster. Little tongues of hungry flame made the Lanians move swiftly over the hot stones. But where is the dragon? whispered one, fearfully and hoping it would not accept the query as an invitation. In vain they looked, there was nothing solid enough to slay. So shouldering their weapons, they wearily returned home, and there set up a stone tablet graven to this effect. Being troubled by a fierce monster, the brave citizens of Lane did set upon it and slay it in its fearful lair, saving the land from a dreadful doom. These words were hard to read when we dug that stone from its deep, ancient layers of encrusting lava. There you go. It's kind of a twist at the end. Yeah, well... Sort of, it, we, it, you know, some some guys. This village is threatened by a dragon. They decide they're going to go up and and kill this dragon. They but go it's just there. a volcano. It's a volcano. Yes, that's. I mean, that's yeah. the impression I get. They go up there to kill the dragon, and they can't find the dragon. But they find this phosphorus smoke, and there's little bits of fire shooting up. They can't find the dragon. They come back and they claim, "Hey, we slay the dragon. We rocked. We did everything we could." And then, yeah. of course, that was found underneath solid, solidified lava. Yeah. So they did get. <laughs> rain down on yeah they got killed now i wasn't sure when i first read it i go wait is this a, this is a volcano right but i wasn't mm -hmm. sure if it was actually literally maybe there was a dragon that lived up there and the dragon came down and breathed lava all over everybody and killed them yeah well, that works on several levels <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i thought i just figured it was a vol i mean i actually found it kind of interesting that they they went up there and they they couldn't find the dragon and they just said hey you know what? It. Tell everyone we killed a monster. Why not? <laughs> you know, they're all lying about stuff all the time. Like, eh, we killed a monster. Yeah. Uh, something about that, I almost wish there wasn't that little twist at the end. I found that kind of amusing. Oh, the guys just went up and claimed that they killed a monster? Yeah, they just made an agreement. Yeah. You know, we're going to lie about what we did here. <laughs> yeah. So I guess people would would do that. But you, again, you need everybody to be on the lie because once one dude yeah. spills the beans, it's over for everybody. Maybe that's what happened. Maybe everybody turned on each other until finally somebody dynamited the volcano. <laughs> <laughs> I'm using like silent movie logic. I don't think dynamiting a volcano will make it interrupt. No, I don't. Please I nobody don't write in to tell me I'm wrong about that. <laughs> By the way, um, I did want to correct something though. A couple of episodes, weren't we talking about, I said something really stupid about Lovecraft being sexist because he was racist or something like that. Oh, right. Yeah, because it was the Oriental business. Right. When he says Oriental, what I thought is he meant the Far East, but that's not what that means. I knew that from before. We've talked about that. It was a stupid mistake yeah. that I made. That when he means the Orient, he means the the Middle East, as in all of Judeo-Christianity. So he wasn't saying anything racist. He was just saying that he thought that mistreatment of women was something that was institutionalized in those cultures. That yes. Sorry, we made a mistake. And uh, I'm, now we're finally owning up to it. Actually, on the forums, I've owned up to it mm -hmm. and apologized for, for doing that. And we have great forums. So if you're interested, go on over there, check them out, and uh, 
there's lots of cool conversations going on. And and we're always saying mea culpa's on there because of the thing. But that's and that's it. That's all we have really for this. We're gonna have a few more R.H. Barlow stories. Yeah, next week, what do we have? Are those Barlow stories? Next week we have the book and the tree on the hill. Yeah, no, those aren't. Are those collaborations? Uh, one's with Dwayne. The other one is not. Dwayne, I'm. I, I don't know. Why I'm on a first name basis with Dwayne, but Dwayne. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> What's the... <laughs> Dwayne? <laughs> Dwayne W. Rimmel or Rimmel? I'm not sure. How it's I thought that was the last name. Why? That no. was, I thought that was somebody's last name. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's that's one of Dwayne's stories. Yeah, folks, we're getting close to the end here. We don't have many many more to go, really. And then after we get through uh, the rest of the, the stories that we have left, and we're going from the um, the fiction page on HP Lovecraft. So the last story on there in his chronological writing is the Night Ocean, which is a Barlow story. It is. Uh, we'll we'll cover that, and then and then we're done. We'll, we're going to do another episode after that in which we kind of talk about the experience and, and things we've learned. Yep. It'll probably probably be a long show, and then we'll talk about what we're going to do going forward. There there will be a, a show in the future, but yes, we'll we'll save talking about that till then. Exactly. I also want to thank our reader, Marty Jopson, who did a kick-ass job. Thank you for all the reading of these crappy stories. <laughs> I'm glad that he got to read the whole one. And the, the second one gave him some time to really go, you know, go for it. Yeah. I liked it. I liked it more hearing, hearing him read it, actually. He has a, a delightful voice, and he's a great guy. Don't forget we have our ransom for the reading of The Temple and the Hound, which will be featured in the upcoming The Lovecraft Anthology, Volume 2 by Self-Made Hero. going to have a lot of great artists, a couple adaptations by the team here, and uh, that'll be out in March. Hopefully we have our readings out by then as well. Please contribute some some money in any amount, and, and that'll help us towards producing those readings, going to the studio and doing that, and as well as uh, paying for our server costs to keep producing the show. Yep. Uh, we're looking for a target of 2000 bucks. We'll be back next week with uh, the book and the tree on the hill, and we'll be glad to talk to you then. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. And this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. Boom! hppodcraft.com <laughs>